Hello, and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, and I've got Darcy. How you doing, Dars? Hey, hey. Uh, I'm doing all right. Doing much better than I was a couple weeks back. Fabulous co-host who's just now recovering. Yeah, I got that Rona. Um, but I'm doing better oh, now. That's good. I'm glad you're feeling yeah. better. It was touch yeah, and go too, there for a minute. You had, like, your entire family was, like, down. It was me and my mom and my nephew. We were all quarantined in the house together. It was actually really fun. I'm not going to lie. Like, I've lived with both my parents now in the past 12 months, <laughs> my dad and my mom. Um, but it was really fun. So, and, like, because my mom is, like, she spends so much time with my nephew who's two and a half. So, like, I don't get to spend that much time with her now, you know? So, like, it was nice. Like, we all Quality were, time. Of course. Quality time. Yeah, you don't good. have to worry about getting her sick because she's already sick. Exactly. So, yeah, I could see that would be a fun little thing. I mean, we, as we age, yeah. we don't tend to spend as much time with our parents anymore, and so it's nice to mm-hmm. get a little extra quality time. Co- COVID silver yeah. lining, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay, so I've got some interesting stuff for the show today. This first right. article, um, it's not a crime-related article, but I think you're going to be interested by this. Get okay. this. Synthetic alcohol promises to make drinking safer. <laughs> Synthetic alcohol. Okay. Our ancestors started drinking booze millions of years ago, and we never stopped. Alcohol is embedded in every culture in the world as a social lubricant, marker of taste, and cornerstone of celebrations. If companies try to bring it to the market for the first time today, however, regulators would most certainly forbid it. More than 200 health conditions from cancer to dementia to cirrhosis are linked to alcohol consumption. It contributes to approximately 3 million deaths globally each year, many via Mm -hmm. auto accidents and suicides. In the U.S. alone, more than 14 million people struggle with alcohol use disorders. It's dangerous, right? Billions Mm -hmm. of people ingest it, though, with hardly a second thought. Okay? Yeah. But what if you could get a buzz from a good drink without the buzz-killing side effects? That's what the marketing hype is bubbling up from. They promise to make you feel tipsy using the magic parts of plant extracts, not alcohol. These companies claim okay. that after a botanical beverage, you can feel more sociable and relaxed without getting drunk, thus eliminating the hangover and sometimes that sometimes follows a boozy night. One such startup is a UK-based company called Gabba Labs, which launched its first product on, called an active botanical spirit it was labeled Centia earlier this year in Europe. It's made from plant extracts that can mimic the effects of alcohol and is meant to top out around the feeling of having a glass of wine or two. But its founders want to go even further. They've also created a not yet for sale synthetic alcohol molecule they say that can be used to create dupes of any booze on the market, from beer to rum to champagne. The company's founders don't yet have enough evidence to legally make claims about their product's health effects, but the implication is clear. Synthetic alcohol could capture the good parts of drinking while ditching the death and disease associated with it. Experts are not convinced, though. They say it sounds too good to be true. Yeah. Example, e-cigarettes. Yeah. They were pitched as being less dangerous to smoke, and they are really scary. Yeah. Um, Heroin was intended to be a safer form of morphine, and again, we know how that worked Mm -hmm. out. But can alcohol be faked in a healthy way? Or would a synthetic version introduce new risks? It is possible to create a product that imitates alcohol without introducing the possibility of addiction or dependence. Is it, though? And could fake alcohol make people already struggling with alcohol use disorders more likely to relapse? 
Given the significant harms caused when alcohol is misused, this is a very interesting approach. However, it raises a series of questions that we don't have answers to yet. So basically, mm -hmm. um, they use this lead science, um, formulating it by mixing botanical compounds that could stimulate the activity of GABA within the brain. It's a neuro mm -hmm. neurotransmitter that produces calming signals to the brain. I've actually taken GABA. Have you ever taken GABA supplements? There's um, like a sub I've never taken GABA supplements, but I mean, I've studied it in like neurology classes. There's a sublingual GABA tablet that you can take, which mm -hmm. they say is very uh, helpful for people with anxiety dis disorders or any kind of anxiety issue. Mm -hmm. You put it underneath the tongue and it like basically forces your brain to calm down. I actually mm -hmm. have taken it before and I like it. I wouldn't say that to me it has the same impact as a drink, but yeah. it's, it's calming. Um, but anyway... Um, alcohol mimics the effects of GABA, is what the scientists say, which is why after a glass of wine or beer, you might feel anxiety and stress subside. But if one glass turns to too many, it might be, you might tip over that line of control yeah. and et cetera. We don't want to produce a massive stimulation, they say. We also work to develop compounds which actively work fast and get out fast. Okay. Centia, that artificial alcohol product, is not the only product of its kind on the market. Kin Euphorics, Gia, and Psychedelic Water are three of several startup companies that are now selling alcohol-free beverages that use plant compounds to create a slightly buzzy, relaxing sensation. All told, non-alcoholic spirit sales in the U.S. grew by almost 300% from 2016 to 2020. Gabba Labs is also working on bringing the synthetic alcohol it invented to the market. The botanical is wonderful, but it's not nearly as strong as, or as effective as a synthetic version of alcohol that has created. Um blah, 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 that they have created, sorry. Um, but the testing required to bring it to market could take years of research mm -hmm. and piles of money. This is sort of a stopgap measure in the meantime. Uh, without clinical trials for the synthetic molecule and limited studies in Centia, the makers are limited in the promises they can make about the product's effects, and they're perfectly willing to raise the possibility that it could have big payoffs. Mm -hmm. If you want to have a good effect that you might expect from alcohol without a lot of things that some people don't want, including breast cancer and liver failure and shrinking of your brain, it's worth talking about this new product. So what do you think? I have so many thoughts. Okay, let's organize them. Okay, first of all, they're saying this does not have the long-term effects of chronic alcohol use. Yes. What about the acute effects? Does it impair you? Can you drive? Can you be? Can you consume it when you're under 21? Uh-huh. What, what is that? They're, they, they've not said anything about that. They're marketing it to a younger audience as well because teen vaping became widespread, right? right? This has got no alcohol in it, so they could definitely market it to younger audiences. It's got no alcohol, but it's got a, an alcohol substitute. So is that... Is so that that's one better? of the, is the that main different what I mean what is that you know what I mean that's like, one of the main drawbacks to this that I think people are calling out yeah they're they're, they're questioning the marketing tactics and minimal safeguards yeah. against underage use that's tainted whatever promise was associated with e-cigarettes and their rise and fall and they say that could potentially end up doing that to this synthetic alcohol as well yeah there's a lot of questions. And B, what are the what? Are the, we don't know the long-term no. effects of this. Just because it's plant-based doesn't mean it has good right. long-term effects. I mean, opium yeah. is a I plant. I mean, it could do the same thing to your liver so, if you consume enough of it. You don't know. There's just not enough research yet. And the thing, yeah, and the thing about addiction. So please let me know if I'm incorrect. But I, my understanding of some forms of addiction, I'm not going to say that I understand all of it. My understanding of some forms of addiction 
is that it's not that the that you get addicted to the chemical it's that the chemical triggers the dopamine pathway in your brain which is the reward pathway so when that when you take it your brain is saying this feels good this feels good this is a reward and then you will keep seeking that over and over again reward i don't know and that's the addiction so it's not that the chemical itself is the addiction it's the feeling that it, that consuming that chemical gives you in your brain. But I don't, so I don't see how they can then claim, if that's true, I might be wrong, but I don't see how they, they can then claim, oh, we've cured the ability to prevent, to keep people from being addicted to alcohol. Because you're just, you're, you would just be substituting exactly. one addiction for another. But, and then they're saying, if you just drink a lot of this, maybe you get addicted to this and that's better for you because we know that it doesn't have the long-term effects of alcohol like what are we do what are we teasing out yeah, like that's- i don't know i mean it'd be interesting to see how that plays out as well and i want to try it i'm sorry i do well so that's fine i mean but it but it kind of just sounds like drinking like small doses of lsd maybe i don't know I've like never why taken not LSD. just make that <laughs> you know what i mean like are that's- you saying legalized drugs <laughs> i'm saying yeah some some drugs lsd yeah. whatnot yeah there's a lot of strong opinions about that you out there. You cannot overdose on LSD. You can't? Nope. I don't know. I had a friend in high school that took too much, and she had hallucinations for years. You cannot overdose and, like, cause detrimental Kill effects. Like uh, you she had some really messed up reactions after she took that, so I don't know about that. But you can't, like, you can't, you can't over, like, you can't die from it and, like... Yeah, she was, She didn't die, but she yeah. was seriously mentally impaired after that, to the point where she could not function normally. But that can happen with anything. I mean, I'm not saying, like, I'm not saying that's pro-LSD. I'm, not a LSD. I'm just saying, like, too dangerous. in terms of the things that are legal versus the things that are not, LSD is not nearly as damaging as chronic alcohol use. Okay, we will agree to disagree. <laughs> okay. And, and, like, okay. And microdosing with, like, mushrooms and, and hallucinogens is becoming another form of therapy now too so basically if you have hate mail to send send it to darcy okay please <laughs> i welcome it just kidding <laughs> yeah i mean there's just a lot of research that needs to be done to make me comfortable yes with any of that. like i like i'm just weary of anything that like comes out and is like we've cured it and it's like we don't know what this does long term yeah like, I mean, I think it's mark. It's all in marketing. They're trying to sell this new product, and I don't yeah. necessarily know that it's better. But they're like, "Oh, hey, that's another way yeah. to make money." So, like, hey, be really more careful money. what you're like when you're consuming that information. Like, be really. I'm careful. not going to drink it because I'm like, "Oh, hey, I want to stop drinking alcohol." I'm going to drink it because I want to taste what it right. tastes yeah, like. Yeah, yeah. I'm saying whatnot. To our listeners, like, be careful when you consume that type of information to uh, really understand what they're getting at, because they're yes. they're intentionally not telling you something. Oh yeah, it's all marketing drama. Yeah, like, does it impair you? Can you get in your car and drive after it? Like, we they've not. I said would not recommend it. <laughs> Don't yeah. do it. Anyway, um, next <laughs> article: China yeah. develops AI prosecutor that can charge citizens with crimes with ninety-seven percent accuracy. Have I you seen heard this? About this. What is that movie, uh, Minority Report? Yeah. It's it right there. Yep. Basically, the machine was built and tested in Shanghai. The China, this is China's largest district prosecution office, and it can file a charge based on verbal descriptions. According to the, Ch- the South China Morning Post, the program runs on a desktop computer. Mm-hmm. 
So basically, researchers trained this machine between 2015 and 2020 using over 17,000 cases. It can now charge a suspect based on a thousand traits gathered from human documentation. At present, the machine can charge eight of the most common crimes in Shanghai that include fraud, credit card fraud, theft, dangerous driving, intentional injury, obstruction of official duties, running a gambling operation, and pickings, quarrels, and provoking trouble. Hmm. That's a charge there, picking quarrels and provoking trouble. Um, the machine works with another program called System 206, which reportedly evaluates evidence, conditions for an arrest, and the degree of danger a suspect poses to the public. It's unclear how many jurisdictions are currently employing the tool. Researchers say this new AI prosecutor has its limitations, but developers say it only gets better with upgrades. So far, it helps reduce the workload of prosecutors in the district office, giving them time to focus on more complex tasks. Um, the lead scientist on this machine is also the director of the Big Data and Knowledge Management Laboratory at the Chinese Academy of Sciences and says it can replace prosecutors in the decision-making process to a certain extent. This includes the ability to suggest sentences, among other legal procedures. A more advanced program should be able to eliminate data that are relevant to the case the researchers suggested. It should also be capable of converting the evolving human language into a standard format computers can understand. So while the machine is being lauded for its accuracy, some observers have raised concerns on potential errors. Uh, duh. Mm -hmm. Others believe the program will be used to stifle dissent, considering its ability to charge people for provoking trouble. The accuracy of 97% may be high for a, from a technological point of view, but there will always be a chance of mistakes, say the actual prosecutors there. But who will take responsibility when that happens, the prosecutor, the machine, or the designer of the algorithm? Mm -hmm. Supporters, on the other hand, say artificial intelligence eliminates human errors. System 206, which debuted in Shanghai in January 2019, was praised for helping the court judge impartially. The transcript and evidence presented went along as the trial proceeded. The, two uh, the 206 system realized full-course intelligence assistance and reviewed evidences comprehensively, playing an active role in impartial judgment. What do you think? I think anything involving charging people in China with crime is a little suspect. Yeah. In general. But um, I understand the wanting... I can see the upside of wanting an object, an objectivity prosecution, like an objective prosecution, because you have, like, in America, we have this horrible thing where some, like, prosecutors or some judges will be like, oh, you know what? It's fine that this 18 year old guy raped this girl because, like, he didn't mean to. He and, was like, a he swimmer. Has a really bright and I was future. a swimmer. Yeah. yeah so, exactly. like, He's an and, alumni at my college. So I'm going to let him off. Yeah. So, like, in that sense, I can understand, like, wanting an objective prosecution. But, like, where do you where do you draw the line? And, like, where's the, like, double check system? Because somebody's going to have to double yeah. check it, which is going to just be more yeah. work. So, I, I, I don't know. It's interesting. It's It just, immediately when I read that, I was like, oh, my God, minority yeah. report. Yeah. And, like, System 206 sounds like some kind of, like, Sketchy. 1984. A movie by Orson Welles. Dystopian. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, it just, yeah. And just the name alone is just, like, mm, I don't know. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Um, next article. Um, Man allegedly fabricates SpaceX job offer, then dismembers parents when they discovered his web of lies. This is a Wisconsin case that is not far from where I live right now, and I never freaking Whoa. heard of it. 
this article came out January 5th, which was like two weeks ago, and it was by Andrea Marks, yeah. and it was actually an article from Rolling Stone magazine, but I was so oh. interested in it that I was just riveted by this case, because it's in Wisconsin, not far from where I live, but, yeah. and it's really recent, but like many Americans his age, 23-year-old Chandler Halderson spent the past year or so living at home with his parents. His father, Bart Halderson, and his mother, Krista, believed he was working remotely for a Wisconsin insurance company while finishing up his community college coursework from his room. His life appeared poised to head in a more promising direction, especially after he announced in June 2021 that he'd been hired by Elon Musk's SpaceX program and would be moving to Florida later that month. His girlfriend actually planned to go with him, and he told her he'd already rented an apartment and bought a car. The problem, authorities say, is that none of it was true. According to prosecutors, Halderson was hanging out in his room playing video games all day, waking up early for meetings that didn't exist so that his accountant father, who was working remotely as well during the COVID pandemic, would not suspect the ruse. Then when Bart discovered the truth about his son's fake life, prosecutors say Halderson shot him to death and killed his mother when she arrived home a few hours later. Jesus. He then dismembered their bodies, scattered their remains around southern Wisconsin, and reported them missing almost a week later. He's now on trial in Dane County for his parents' murders, as well as charges of mutilating a corpse, hiding a corpse, and providing false information about a missing person. See pictures of this guy? He looks so freaking normal, like any guy that you would pass in the street or at a gas station or in a grocery store. So this guy pled not guilty to all charges, and the defense says he didn't do it and described him in their opening statements as a normal kid who enjoyed video games, playing with his dogs, and spending time with his girlfriend. Public defender Catherine Dorrell seemed to confirm that Halderson lied about his jobs and schooling, but suggested the deception was not a motive for murder. <laughs> You're also going to not know how Bart and Krista would have reacted to these lies, she said, referring to the state's case. That's never going to be explained to you how lying turns into murder. She also said it was even possible that Halderson would be convicted of some of the lesser charges he faces, but what evidence do you have of murder, she says. In the prosecution's opening statement on Tuesday in Dane County, they said that Halderson spun an amazing web of lies trying to prop up his claims when he was hold that he was holding down a job and studying renewable energy in engineering, when in truth he'd flunked out after one semester. He fabricated dozens of email exchanges between himself and college administrators and even posed as an advisor on a call with his dad using a burner phone he'd purchased. When his accountant father would ask him why he wasn't getting paid by his employer for almost a year, he made up excuses about errors in his salary and direct deposit information, eventually creating a fake paper trail of emails with HR that he could show his dad. Oh this God. totally reminds me of that case, the fam, Jenny, Jennifer Pham who did the same kind of a thing. Like she was living at home and t convincing yeah. her parents yeah. that she'd done all that and that she killed them when they, or tried to kill yeah. her father and killed her mother. But anyway, with pressure mounting from his father to pay rent, Brown said Halderson doubled down on his lie. The best way out of your pretend job is even more pretend jobs. <laughs> He's gonna be an astronaut, oh he told God. his family and his girlfriend. He'd been hired by SpaceX and his girlfriend made plans to move to Florida with him. Then Brown claimed lacking a current or future job, a pending degree, or any money to make <laughs> to make to move to Florida, Halderson stalled. Prosecutors allege he faked a head injury, said he'd he said he'd fallen down the stairs and suffered a terrible concussion. 
And Brown said a doctor would refute this on the stand. He also said that he claimed that he had spinal damage and nerve damage that put him in a neck brace and rendered him unable to travel. So that's why he couldn't go to Florida right away. Around the same time, Halderson's dad, Bart, allegedly finally placed a call to Madison Technical College to, to this Madison area technical college he was claiming to be at and asked about his son's transcript mm -hmm. and discovered that none of the administrators had even heard of him. So basically, he recorded the customer service call and Bart's calendar showed that on June, the July 1st, 2021, he and Halderson were scheduled to go to MATC for a meeting, a meeting the prosecutors contend must have been fake. That afternoon, Bart texted Halderson, I'm ready whenever you are. It was Bart's last recorded communication. Brown claimed that rather than going to the college for a non-existent meeting, Halderson had shot his father with a rifle and killed his mother a short while later when she returned home, then dismembered their bodies, turned, tried to burn them in their home fireplace, and then scattered their remains on public, on public oh lands, God. farms, along rivers and ditches and in trash cans. Brown previewed some of the evidence he said would prove Halderson's involvement. Investigators found remains of a human skull in the fireplace at the Halderson's home. The owner of Halderson's girlfriend's family farm said he'd come by acting strangely after July 1st. He asked if he could swim in their pool, but they soon spotted him out in the field with the hatch of his car open. That's where police say Bart's torso, along with saw blades, scissors, tree loppers, and a tarp covered with Bart and Kristen's blood was. Brown also said cops found the murder weapon, SKS rifle, given to Halderson by one of his online friends in the barn of the property. Oh, my God. The morning after Halderson allegedly killed his parents, he told his girlfriend he was doing chores, but she captured a screenshot of his location in a wooded area by the Wisconsin River, thinking it was unusual. Police went there and found Krista's dismembered legs. In the early evening of July 1st, after allegedly murdering his parents, Halderson wrote a list using the Notes app on his phone. It included hydrogen peroxide, lemon, and the directives, clean floor and get a job. Can you believe clean this? Clean floor and get a job. Can you believe this guy? I He's literally like believe a half an a hour single from word me. of the story. Like, this is the most bonkers. This is crazy. This is a real case. That the trial is going on uh, right now. He like with the amount of energy that this guy spent faking his college, yeah. faking his job, pretending to work, he could have got a real job and actually worked. Faking a paper trail with HR. Seriously, can you believe this guy? Faking an injury, like it's incredible to me. Like the creativity, the discipline, the things that he did to perpetuate these lies upon lies upon lies, he could have got a real yeah. job. Wow. It's just incredible to me how what some people will do to be lazy and play video games all day. But, like, you can make money from playing video games all day now, can't you? Even then, right? Like... Seriously, this guy had no excuse. He was just a disgusting person. My lord. And then to cut your own parents up into pieces yeah. and just kind of toss, lop the bodies all over the state? Like, wow. I don't even know. He's got to be mentally ill. Like... You've got to be mentally ill. You can't do stuff like that and not be severely mentally ill. I don't. I don't. I, I don't even know where to begin. Like that. I. I don't even know. Speaking of crazy cases, yeah. let's talk about the main case for the okay. day. I'm going to talk about Mary Vincent. Oh. Ooh. <laughs> right. Yeah. I've been wanting to talk about this one for a while now too. Um. 
This is the case of Mary Vincent. She was born in Las Vegas, Nevada as one of seven kids in the late 60s. That's too many kids. Yeah, that's a lot of kids. Uh, she was the daughter of a mechanic, and her mother was a blackjack dealer. Her father was also in the military, so clearly life wasn't super stable mm -hmm. in the Vincent home, but Mary's parents were involved in a very messy divorce by the late 70s, and this kind of made things even more challenging. Mary had been interested in dancing and had dreams of a career in the arts or some form of dancing. Mm -hmm. um, but the divorce was very tumultuous, and her dad at times went to Alaska, and there was a lot of kind of drama in their mm -hmm. house. Um, the kids and the mom were in Vegas most of the time, but Mary was known to argue very frequently with her mom and dad, sneak out, um, qu uh, cut school, and run off with her boyfriend a lot. Mm -hmm. She spent one summer in California. Um, she kind of lived in a car with her boyfriend at one point. Wow. And the police ended up apprehending her boyfriend on rape charges for another woman. Whoa. So that kind of put, put the kibosh on that. By that point, Mary is alone and homesick, so she decides to make the trip back up uh, to Vegas from California by hitchhiking. So let me preface this by saying that hitchhiking was very common back then. Yeah. I know we've talked in numerous other cases about people that hitchhiked and how normal it was and how it was kind of a rite of passage. I remember as a young child, my mother picking up hitchhikers. I know you've said that before. Garden. Like that is bonkers to me. Because it was just so common. Like, and like people, it just, not a lot of people had cars. Yeah. And then you had gas shortages and it was expensive to own a car. Yeah. And so like you had a lot of young people who were kind of experiencing that hippie euphoria and like sort of, they didn't have the money for cars either or to buy a bus ticket. So they would hitchhike everywhere. Ugh. So it was just sort of a thing back yeah. then. But anyway, she decides to do that. And she spends a short amount of time at home with her family and then runs away again. Okay. So you can kind of see this is a common theme mm -hmm. for her. And it was, I think, a common theme for a lot of young boys and girls during this time period as well. Sure. Um, and there's lots of change in the family structure and the role of women, etc. And so I think that, you know, with that kind of happening in society, Mary is definitely going through moments of confusion about what she wants to do and and kind of struggling with her identity and with her parents relationship and she decides that she's going to hitchhike to her grandfather who lives in Corona California okay and this is near Riverside it's about 50 miles from Los Angeles about 50 miles east of Los mm -hmm. Angeles and about 20 miles from Riverside the city of Riverside in Southern California okay. it's kind of a, a little bedroom town kind of a suburban sort of a thing it's a nice little town but Evidently, Mary had been in some sort of situation with her dad, and she was kind of afraid that he was going to yell at her when she got home, so she decided to just kind of take mm. off. Okay. And she basically, this is the late 70s by this point, and hitchhiking was super mm -hmm. common, as I mentioned. It was a, kind of a cool part of society hitchhike yeah. back then. And so she makes her way to her grandfather's place, and she's moving kind of slow, and she's sleeping on the street sometimes and staying up, you know, as she's waiting to get rides. And this is sort of the stereotypical 70s runaway kind of a situation. She's like 15 years old. And I think 15 years old back then was definitely not the same as 15 yeah. years old. <laughs> like we're talking about even the difference between the 15-year-old kids in the Pamela Smart case versus 15-year-old Mary was like night and yeah. day. She's, like, smoking and hitchhiking yeah. and living on the street. Like, she's an adult, basically. Yeah. Like, it's crazy. I mean, she's not because she's still a kid, but I think she was a little bit probably more mature mm -hmm. for her age. 
and she really wasn't afraid. She's definitely she more independent safety. and no. doing more things for herself than like 15 year olds now. Yeah, and I think you kind of get into a situation sometimes when you do things that are unsafe where you kind of get numb to oh, yeah. it and you think, well, nothing bad happened to me the first 20 times I did it, so nothing bad can happen to me Especially again. Especially when you're, when you're younger. Like, you are already that, you already have that feeling of invincibility. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So fast forward September 29th, 1978. Mary, again, she's 15, and she's meeting. She has two hitchhikers that she's kind of hanging out with, and she's in Berkeley, California at this point. Mm-hmm. And she starts traveling with this trio, and they're kind of keeping each other safe and keeping each other company. And so she feels like she's, you know, super chill at that point. And they're walking along the freeway with a sign, and they're catching rides this way. And I actually remember seeing people do this not too long ago. I think it's still kind of a thing. Really? Like, you know, having a sign alongside the road and hitchhiking your way. I've never seen, like, women alone doing it, but I've definitely seen it pretty recently. Wow. But as the evening is starting to come, uh, quickly approach, a blue van stops. Okay. And 50-year-old Lawrence Singleton is the driver. Singleton is a merchant seaman, and he's kind of this grandfatherly kind of guy, mm-hmm. which this just blows my mind because my significant other is like 50, and there's no way. Like, I don't even think of him as in the same universe as grandfatherly. Right. Like, and then you see pictures of Lawrence Singleton now, like if you Google him and see what he looked like back then, he looks like 80. Yeah. <laughs> so like back then, like, and he was a merchant seaman, so he's probably like weathered. Yeah, like he and like lived a hard life. Sunburn and like smoking and drinking yeah. and cursing. And like 50 back then was like the equivalent of 80 and 50 now is like the equivalent of like 30. Yeah. So he's just a thousand years beyond 50 when you look at him. But in any case, I'm sure to a 15-year-old young lady, he probably looked 100 years yeah. old, right? He's kind of super chill and looks all grandfatherly, and she doesn't feel threatened by him. Mm-hmm. But he only wants to give her a ride. He's like, I only have room for one. I can't take the rest of you. Sorry. Red flag. Serious red flag. Okay. So she's super tired by this point because she'd been staying up really late mm-hmm. where they were looking to get a ride. She's not really thinking that clearly. And her travel partners are like, don't get in this van with this guy. Yeah. Pass on this ride. Don't do it. This is not right. Yeah. You, you shouldn't do this. And she gets in the van anyway. Yeah. Okay. So basically Lawrence also tells her that he has a daughter that's around her age. And this somehow reassures her. And she relaxes and gets into this creepy van. Mm-hmm. Right. First of all, it's a van. Like I'd never get into a freaking well, van. Well, in a van he's like, I only have room for one. That seems hella yeah. shady to me. Anyway, in the meantime, though, creepy Larry Singleton tells Mary that he's heading for Reno, Nevada, but hey, you know what? I'm going to take a detour just for you because I like you. You're a good kid, mm. right? Which no one does that. It's like nope. 11 hours difference. Like, Yeah, that's not a thing. <laughs> Seriously. So Mary lights up a cigarette. I'm like, she's 15 years old, and she's smoking like mm-hmm. a freaking movie star at that point. And she leans back in her seat. And the first sign of trouble comes when she kind of sneezes or coughs or something, and he leans over and grabs her and is like, are you sick? Like, touches her, like, too closely. And she's like, this Ew. is totally inappropriate, not cool, don't do that. She moves away from him as far as she can get, right? He says, oh, 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 I'm sorry. You know, he acts all contrite. And uh-huh. Mary um, is like, okay, I forgive you. And she dozes off for an uncertain amount of time. So she's not clear about how long exactly it was that she'd slept. But uh-huh. when she wakes up, she's astute enough to see that there's they're going the wrong way. Yeah. And basically she confronts him and is like, where the hell are you taking me? Yeah. What's going on? 
she gets super scared and is looking around for some kind of a weapon she can use against this guy. Mm -hmm. And she finds this sort of a stick under the seat. And she tells him, no way, turn this van around now. Yeah. She kind of gets a little badass on him. And he's like, oh, oh, I'm sorry. My bad. My bad. It's an honest mistake. You know, let's turn the van around. I'm good. Um, and then Mary calms back down until he says he's got to pull over to pee. Okay. Mm -hmm. So by then they're all in this remote spot. It's a little east of San Jose in this canyon kind of an area, which, oh my God, can you not think how terrifying that would be? Like, uh, have yeah. you ever driven in that area? Like when you get out past San Jose in that area is just like very remote. Okay. Yeah. I've never been up that far north in California. It's a lot of like open fields and just like remote. There's not a lot of traffic in yeah. some of those areas. And he's like, I got to pee. And she's like, okay, fine, whatever. I got to pee too. And she, they both get out of the car. Mary says she's got to stretch her legs or maybe she had to pee too. Or maybe she was just going to get herself ready to bowl if she needed to. And Singleton is getting creepier by the minute. She bends down to tie her shoes and he hits her in the head with a sledgehammer. Jesus Christ. Yeah. So the force of this kind of knocks her out. Yeah. I mean, yeah, right? I mean, you know all about head injuries. Like, it's shocking that she was survived being hit in the head yes. by a sledgehammer. Yeah. Right? So she eventually f wakes up and is like, Creepy Larry is standing over her. That's his name to me, Creepy Larry. Yeah, appropriate. Um, he has all of his personal parts out and is telling her he wants her to get busy or he's going to kill her. So he drags her back to the van and sexually assaults her with extreme viciousness. Like, he's just awful, awful, awful. And this lasts for hours as he's raping her over and over and over again. And he tells her not to scream. And basically, she needs to obey to survive. She's, like, injured and terrified. And she basically does what she needs to do to survive. She's mm -hmm. compliant to the point that she needs to be to survive. And she begs for her life as he ties up her hands and feet and drives to a more remote location he forces her at certain points to drink large amounts of some kind of weird booze while he continues to rape and assault her over and over. Um, she is drifting in and out of consciousness, but she's tied up the whole time, so even when he passes out too, she can't mm. get away. Larry wakes up, and she's begging him to free her. Mm -hmm. She's naked, and she's probably hurt very bad by that point if she's been hit in the head with a sledgehammer yeah. and raped over and over again. But she's probably also kind of a little numb because, like, he's been forcing her to drink, you know, God knows whatever the alcohol that was. It could have been Everclear. Who knows? Right. And Larry tells her to go to the side, to go to the edge of the road. He tells her to lay down, and he comes back from the van with an axe, and she's pinned down by that point, and he proceeds to chop off her right arm. And Jesus. it's around the elbow or right below the elbow. And, like, and let's be very clear that's not one swift motion. Like, that would take multiple impacts. Yeah. But he's a pretty strong guy as well, and mm -hmm. she seems like she was pretty petite and small, so I'm not sure that it would necessarily have taken all that much to get that off. But, but depending on how sharp that blade would be, though, like, that's what it is, because it's not going to be a clean cut. No. But she's conscious the entire time and doesn't pass out, believe and it or not. And she's been drinking, so, like, her blood is, like, she's her, she's bleeding all over the place. So she's holding onto his arm and pleading with him as he cuts it off, and her hand is still gripping her arm. Jesus Christ. Gripping this, gripping this guy's arm at some point because the muscles were contracted mm -hmm. when he did it. And he's, like, trying to get the arm, shake her hand off of him, and, ugh, just sounds absolutely horrific. 
And after all of that, Mary is in shock and her body starts to shut down. She's numb and she's terrified and she's laying on the ground kind of playing dead. He picks her up and throws her over a 30 foot, over a 30 foot like cliff mm-hmm. sort of a thing. And then comes down the cliff and stuffs her body into this water pipe. God. Which is only like 12 to 15 inches in diameter. Yeah. And then he drives off and leaves her. But Mary was alive. Yeah. And she later says that a voice inside of her head was telling her the whole time that she needed to remain awake to survive. Mm-hmm. So she also wants to make sure that Lawrence Singleton gets prosecuted so he could never do this sort of thing to another helpless victim, which, mm-hmm. holy moly. Yeah. I mean, to have the presence of mind at 15 and you, when you've just gone through this horrific experience to be able to get all that. But Mary actually follows the sound of cars and she's like filthy covered in blood and Mm -hmm. mud and all kinds of stuff and she gets back up to the road and she's like periodically patting her arms in the mud Mm -hmm. to stop the bleeding and she actually has a presence of mind to do that as well as to lift her arms in the air above her head to prevent the blood flow and to prevent anything else from coming out of the wounds. And so, which, was it just the one arm? No, both arms. Both he arms. Chopped okay, off both arms below the elbow. Yeah. <sighs> anyway, there's like 15-year-old girl who just has both of her hands chopped off. Yeah. Right below the elbow and has the ability to think that she needs to, number one, stop the blood flow. And number two, to get somewhere where they, she can get help. Yeah. Like, uh, this is incredible. Not to mention the fact she's been hit in the head with a sledgehammer. Mm-hmm. But it's early and there's not a lot of traffic where she's at. And even though she makes it up to the road again, at one point a car slows down with two guys in it. But they quickly like get the heck out of Dodge when they see that this she's like muddy and yeah. bloody. And they're like, what the hell is going on? And they drive off all freaked out. But later Mary says she didn't hold any grudges against these two guys because... It was she. She knew she was pretty gross, gruesome right. at that point, and was like, "I probably would have done the same thing." But eventually, another car slows down, and it's a couple celebrating their honeymoon. Which, holy moly! Yeah, for that's a memorable girl, honeymoon. They they made a wrong turn, and lucky lucky for her, yeah. they did because who knows how long she would have lasted out there. But this amazing couple actually wraps Mary up in whatever they could find in the car and takes her to the nearest airport, where they were able to get an ambulance for her. And she kept telling everyone that Lauren Singleton had done this. I mean, she didn't know his name, but she was like, this man did this. He raped me. He raped me. He raped me. Like, we need to find this guy. And she actually gives a detailed description of her attacker. And this is kind of where the story varies in some accounts. Like, some people say she wasn't able to do that until she was under hypnosis. And other Mm -hmm. people say she gave a perfect account up front. Either way, regardless, um, yeah. an image of this guy <clears throat> was created by a sketch artist. And I guess from what I understand, you know, looking at the image itself and looking at pictures of this guy, it was a pretty spot on yeah. um, piece of art, but or pretty spot on uh, rendering. And believe it or not, I think they either put it on TV or they put it in the news or something of that nature. His neighbor sees the sketch and tells the police... <laughs> This is my neighbor, Larry Singleton. I mean, the luck. Yeah. That that person just happened to have been watching at that time and identifies this guy. So Singleton, um, October 9th, 1978, is arrested, apprehended, thrown in jail. Right. So Singleton says, yeah, I picked her up, but she was a sex worker. And one of the other men who also coincidentally was named Larry that she was with, because remember she was with the two people. Mm Mm-hmm. One of the other people she was mm-hmm. with was named Larry, and he's the one that did it and tried to frame me. 
Right. Right. Mm. So fortunately, though, there's a boatload of good evidence in this case against Creepy Larry, and he goes to trial six, month af- six months after his arrest. So by then, it's March 29, 1979, and after a very short deliberation, the jury finds Singleton guilty of attempted murder, kidnapping, sexual assault, and a really long list of other charges. Mary testifies mm-hmm. at the trial, and at one point, this creep whispers to her that he would finish the job if it takes the rest of his life. God. I mean, talk about creepy and horrific, right? Like, uh, yeah. But the really kind of awful part about this is then is that in California at that time, the sentencing guidelines really kind of prevented them from doing anything more than giving him a very short sentence. He got 14 years. Oh, my God. And he got multiple charges. The 14 was the total. And they, they ser- he was allowed to serve all of it concurrently. Oh, my gosh. So lots of charges. And the judge actually acknowledged how messed up this case was and said that if he was able to, he would have handed down a longer sentence. Yeah. He said he would have sent, gave the guy a life sentence without parole because he was just that yeah. creepy. But obviously the laws back then were super lax, and it wasn't until the 80s and 90s where things started to get better with sentencing. But Singleton goes to prison in San Luis Obispo. And he serves out a sentence and gets paroled after eight years and four months. God. Right? Unbelievable. He gets credit for early. He gets early release credits for work. No, he gets he gets early release credits for work and good behavior, and then he gets credit for time served while he was waiting for his trial. Right. Um, there was actually in 1983 there was some sort of a work incentive, work furlough, etc., for violent offenders, which is super scary. Mm-hmm. Um, and the public was super outraged when he got released early yeah. too. They were like, no. Um, evidently, psychologists who reviewed the case and interviewed Singleton said that he was out of touch with his hostility and anger and was a threat to everyone, both inside and outside of prison. So, like, no kidding. Yeah, they they called it out. But you know how it is back then. They didn't pay. You yeah, know, didn't pay a lot of attention. They paid a little bit, but not a lot. Um, Especially when it comes to like sexual assault. Oh yeah, and everybody knew he was going to reoffend, but they let him out yeah. anyway. Uh, this case actually made national headlines. Um, and everyone was, like, demanding stricter laws for punishment for things like this. It was actually, there was one that was proposed, it was called the Singleton Bill, which prohibited early release for offenders involved with torture cases like Mary's. Um, there would be a minimum sentence for this sort of crime that would be at least 25 years. Mm-hmm. Um, on parole, none of the nearby communities wanted Singleton. Surprise, yeah. surprise, right? This was a huge thing back then, too. They protested every single time they were talking about a different community um, being able to host this guy. But mm-hmm. his 11 months of parole were spent in a trailer on the prison grounds at San Quentin. Yeah. Because um, that's the only place he could go that didn't, you know, go crazy yeah. with him. I can't believe he only got 11 months of parole, too. That's just... Seriously. Crazy. Um, Mary, in the meantime, gets some prosthetic arms... And she graduates from the University of Nevada. Um, even so, she says that she was isolated, depressed, and struggling a lot. Um, she couldn't dance anymore. Evidently, they needed mm-hmm. to take muscles from her legs to help save parts of her arms. Oh. So, like, that's mm-hmm. one you know, part of her passion that she'd had that she was no longer able yeah. to do, which kind of was very depressing and devastating for her. And she still had nightmares. And she was terrified of this guy, which, you know, who wouldn't be? Obviously, yeah. And she's scared he's going to come back and find her to finish his promise to kill her. Uh, yeah. And unbelievably, well, this j- 
Jerk is in jail. He's continuing to write letters threatening to kill her and giving them to her attorney. Holy cow. And, like, that's not a reason to, like, keep him in prison for his full term. Um, But Mary does get married, and she has two sons. She struggles with relationships um, and starts doing artwork and things like that. But Mm -hmm. while this is going on, Lawrence moves to Tampa, Florida. Because evidently this is where he was born and raised. So he's, like, going to get away from California and start a new life. No one seems to know there about his past, and he calls himself Bill and tries to lay low Mm -hmm. and rebuild his life. So there were some of them that knew him at that time, and they said he was super nice and really chill, and a couple people had heard about his conviction in California, um, but they said that they basically just kind of saw his interactions and claimed that he was, he claimed that he was framed, and so everyone just sort of forgot about it, right? Hmm. But Larry slash Bill was still committing theft, and he had kind of some minor little infractions, a little bit of jail time, and went about his business, right? He's not on parole at that point anymore, so it's not like they could throw him in jail for a parole violation. Yeah. Um, And then February 19th, 1997, which does not seem that long ago. No. um, Lawrence is in his 70s, and he meets up with Roxanne Hayes. She is a mother in her 30s. She's returning home from getting groceries. She was also a known sex worker. Mm-hmm. And he pretty much convinces her to come back to his house for a little sexual activity, right? Okay. Um, a painter is also scheduled to come do work at Lawrence's house during this time, and he comes and knocks on the door at Lawrence's house, and then no one answers, so he goes around the side of the house and accidentally witnesses Lawrence Singleton naked and violently beating Roxanne Hayes. God. So, like, it was only a matter of time, right? Yeah. And he calls 911 because, you know. Yeah. Right? Covered in blood, Lawrence slash Bill answers the door and tells police, whoops, sorry, I cut myself chopping veggies. Um, (laughs) no. Yeah, that's not a thing. So as he's chatting, the phone rings and he's like, hang on one minute, I'm going to go answer this. I'll be right back. And as he steps away, the police kind of like look in the house and they see Roxanne Hayes like stabbed 12 times. Oh, my God. In the other room, dead. And they obviously arrest this guy. He initially claims insanity and then self-defense and maybe a combination of those two things and goes to a mental hospital for a little bit for about two weeks. And at some point, he tries to commit suicide, furthering why he should be in a mental hospital, right? Uh But evidently, he ends up going to trial anyway. And Mary testifies at the penalty phase, and she recalls her attack. And April 14th, 1998, 70-year-old Lawrence Singleton is convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to death in Florida. A few years later, after a short battle with cancer, he dies in a Florida prison hospital. In the meantime, though, Mary goes to D.C. to press Congress to pass legislation for tougher laws against murders, rapists, and child molesters. She really believes that offenders should get death or life in prison without parole, and she testifies about Singleton's light sentence and how this allowed him to, to be released to kill. Mm. The bill never gets passed, but California did um, toughen up its sentencing guidelines, um, so it had a desired effect at least to some degree. Yeah. And Vincent eventually gets about $2.5 million from a civil lawsuit against Singleton, but, of course, you know she's not going to get a dime of that, and she never did. Right. If, you can't get the money if they don't have it. Yeah. Um, Mary is an artist now and doing fairly well. She kind of keeps everything low-key. She hasn't really been in the media a lot. But she likes to do family portraits and depictions of strong women. 
Um, she also started a foundation and who had two sons in the meantime and remained like, outspoken and she talked to crime victim as a as a victim of crime talked to audiences about crime victims and yeah. advoca advocated on their behalf unbelievable crazy Freaking crazy hero crazy like yeah. unbelievable just unbelievable that she survived all that yeah like that's just every time i hear about that case i'm i know riveted god it's so intense too and it's that's one of those that was on i, I survived right i believe it was yeah i've heard that like, case though literally i don't know 10 times yeah and i never get tired of hearing how she like freaking stared him down and took him to court and got on the stand and testified Twice. against him and just incredible incredible yeah. incredible woman that went through Amazing. some horrific circumstances and came out on the other side as a survivor yeah so anyway um anything else you want to add to that one no, dude. There's a ton of stuff out there. So if you all want to do research yeah. or see her I Survived episode, go check it out. Yeah. Um, in the meantime, you can um, email us if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions. We're at the BFD podcast at gmail.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our little podcast. It helps us significantly. Darcy, social media? Yeah, we are at the BFD podcast on Instagram. So there's a lot of clips and try to post some pictures and of that stuff from creepy this episode old dude that, yeah that we'll be posting for this one absolutely um and please join us again next week when we talk more about weird wacky and wild cases good night podcast peeps stay safe keep it real and always live your very best life bye bye guys